Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Give the lady her flowers. Her historic 20-year run as Democratic leader is coming to an end. As generational change comes to the House Democratic leadership in the wake of a midterm that defied the historic odds. Meanwhile, House Republicans are doing exactly what you'd expect, ignoring the lessons of the midterm elections and focusing on Hunter Biden. Plus, the blue wave that hit Michigan and Pennsylvania and what Democrats will do with their new power on the state level. Michael Moore joins me later. We begin the readout tonight with the end of an era. Today, Nancy Pelosi, the first and only woman to serve as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, took to the House floor to announce that she will step down from Democratic leadership after an historic two-decade tenure leading House Democrats. The announcement comes after Republicans regained control of the House in the midterms. Pelosi said she will remain a member of Congress and serve out the term to which she was just reelected. But she is paving the way for a new generation to fill the leadership ranks. The number two Democrat, Steny Hoyer, is also stepping aside. When I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90. And we want more. <laughs> Indeed, American democracy is majestic, but it is fragile. Many of us here have witnessed its fragility firsthand, tragically, in this chamber. And so democracy must be forever defended from forces that wish it harm. Last week, the American people spoke, and their voices were raised in defense of liberty, of the rule of law, and of democracy itself. With these elections, the people stood in the breach and repelled the assault on democracy. They resoundingly rejected violence and insurrection, and in doing so, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Also stepping aside, the great Jim Clyburn. Nancy Pelosi may be departing, giving up, I mean, may be departing and giving up the reins, but her legacy atop the House dais will surely endure. Pelosi was first elected to the House in 1987, shortly before the year of the woman would alter ever so slightly the makeup of Congress. Through talent and sheer will, the same will that would later help her advance major legislation, Pelosi rose through the ranks, becoming Speaker in 2007, saying she had cracked the marble ceiling. She became Speaker a second time in 2019 when Democrats rode a wave of opposition to Trump to win control of the House. She was reelected Speaker in January 2021, presiding over the most diverse House membership in history. Pelosi also had a knack for breaking the Internet. 
from pointing her finger at Trump during a congressional meeting. Note, she is the only woman visible at the table. Trump had tweeted the photo to degrade her, but Pelosi liked it so much, she made it her cover photo on Twitter. Earlier that year, she'd given Trump a literal clapback while giving angry auntie during the 2019 State of the Union address. And then she went viral when she ripped Trump's printed State of the Union speech in half. And remember this? How could you not? Pelosi making a grand exit from the White House in this Max Mara fire coat. This was after a contentious showdown with Trump, a coat so meme-tastic it had to be reissued with a sunglassed Pelosi looking triumphant. Fashion aside, she oversaw groundbreaking legislative accomplishments like helping to ensure health care is a right and not a privilege. Here's Pelosi emerging as a powerhouse, piercing through throngs of Tea Party, anti-Obama protesters while carrying the gavel that was used when Medicare was passed, as she and congressional Democrats including the late, great John Lewis, marched to the Capitol before the health care vote. Nevertheless, she persisted, only to later lead her chamber during one of the darkest days for our democracy, when it was threatened by insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol. There has to be some way we can maintain the sense that people have that there's uh, some security or some confidence that government can function and that we can elect the president of the United States. Violence would strike again, this time in the most sacred of spaces, her home, when her husband Paul was attacked in October. A reminder of how women politicians, and especially high-profile ones, are so often under siege. It was only one of the many challenges Nancy Pelosi stood up against, which is why today President Biden described her as the most consequential House speaker in our history, who will never waver in protecting our sacred democracy. And joining me now is Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania and Nadim El-Shami, who has served as Pelosi's chief of staff when she was minority leader and currently is a policy director, is the policy director for Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. Thank you both for being here. And I I do want to start with you, Congresswoman, and ask, what was the mood in the chamber as Speaker Pelosi gave that really eloquent and epic um, sort of final address as Speaker? I'm sure she'll speak again, but that was sort of her her uh, her outro. Well, Joy, great to be with you and Nadim. Nadim, you and I didn't get a chance to serve together, but man, oh, man, you served her so well and you served our country. Uh, I have to tell you, there was a bit of breathlessness uh, in the chamber. Uh, I sat with an awful lot of my colleagues, happened to be surrounded by a lot of women, members of Congress. We recognized the historic moment that we were on the precipice of. Uh, but she spoke with grace and majesty. And she was incredibly Speaker Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi, revealing her constant love of country love of family, belief in the rule of law, belief in our Constitution, and that our better days are still ahead. Uh, it was just a, uh, uh, I have to tell you, I, I, I found it both joyful and sad. Yeah. As she said, it was a season. You know, there, there is a season for everything. Uh, and so with that, we understood what she was doing. Uh, and I have to tell you, I just feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to have served alongside her. You know, and Nadim, it is the essence of class 
to know when to leave the stage and to know how to leave the stage and to do so with the grace that we saw today. You know, this is this is Nancy uh, Alessandra Pelosi from Baltimore. Let's not forget from Baltimore, representing uh, a great city of Baltimore uh, who serves in the city of San Francisco, the equally great city there. Talk about what it was like to work for her. Oh, gosh. You know, thinking about the, the days I spent uh, working for the speaker, and I've always called her speaker, whether we're in the majority or the minority, right? She will always be speaker. Um, it was a master class in politics every single moment, every single day. She cared deeply about her members, as Congresswoman Dean knows very well. She cared, uh, she cared deeply about the issues, and she continues to strive no matter the consequences, no matter the hurdles. Look, many of us felt that, hoped that this day would never come, but we knew it would. And just like any legislative battle, just like any uh, thing that she does, she did it strategically, methodically, and has set the stage for the next generation of leaders um, with a strong Democratic caucus heading into next Congress. I, I am going to talk about some of the next uh, the next leadership, which she's ushered in, which is actually epic. I mean, we're talking about the diversity of it, the, you know, the diversity just of you being on her staff, Nadine. But we're going to talk about that in a second. But I have to play all of, for all of you. My favorite uh, Speaker Pelosi quote. I think I always call her Speaker Pelosi, too, no matter what. But uh, Speaker Pelosi, this is my favorite Speaker Pelosi quote. Here it is. People laugh when I say it, but I always say to candidates and especially women candidates, when you come into this arena, you're in the arena, you're going to have to be able to take a punch. You have to be able to throw a punch for the children. <laughs> I have friends who literally just text me, you have to be able to throw a punch for the children. It's like uh, our favorite statement. But I mean, that was right after the insurrection had happened. We went over to the Capitol to interview her. And Congresswoman, her just her sense of she understood the majestic around her. She understood the meaning of the Capitol. She has an in-depth meaning of, you know, strategy, as Nadim said, but also of the purpose for it. And she always would bring back her policies. Every time I've interviewed her, it's about the children. It's about doing this for children and to make sure that our children have what, you know, we didn't have. And, and talk a little bit about that, because there were some tough votes. Health care was not an easy vote. Obamacare. Democrats paid a big price for doing it, but they thought it was worth it. Well, you know what? I have enjoyed these past more than four years because she helped me on my campaign four years ago. Uh, and she always, whether it's in a public setting, a campaign setting, a political setting, or in private, just speaking her to her one-to-one, -one, she always goes back to, Mad, make sure you know your why. And her why is always the children. And so it is a master class being around Nancy Pelosi of grace, of class, of knowing your subject matter, of mastering your subject matter, but making sure you know your why for the children, for the future. That's what she's done. Uh, she's yeah. the most historic uh, uh, speaker of the House. And what I love, I have to tell you, is the day I got sworn in, uh, in January of 2019, I was able to have my granddaughter, who was maybe six or seven at the time, in the chair with me, in the well of the floor. And she went up onto the dais with Speaker Pelosi, whom I always call Speaker also. <laughs> and, and so up she went. And so my granddaughter doesn't think of any difference in gender doesn't think there's any barrier that a woman could do this job. She knows that, of course, a woman can do this job. And in fact, Speaker Nancy Pelosi did this job better than anybody else.
I do think she will go into history as the greatest speaker of the House in our history. And I mean that. I mean, passing, just passing Obamacare was an historic 100-year triumph. Mm-hmm. You know, it took 100 years to make it happen. And she and Harry Reid are the ones who guided it through. I want to talk about this thing that she did today. She and uh, Cindy Hoyer and Jim Clyburn moved aside to bring in this new leadership. And it is historic in and of itself. So we're talking about Pete Aguilar of California, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, and Hakeem Jeffries. This new leadership looks like America, Nadim. Um, Talk about what kind of change you think that will make and what will be her role as this eminence grease who they can turn to when they need advice. Yeah, I loved her quote when she said, I'm not going to be the mother-in-law in in the kitchen saying that, you know, my, my son doesn't like it this way. I think it was one of the One of the newspapers mentioned that. And that's so classic. She feels very strongly about the diversity of the Democratic caucus, about the strength of a a leader or soon to be leader like uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and and, and Clark and Aguilar. That is the future of the Democratic Party, of the Democratic caucus. That is who we are. Um, Each have their strength. They each rely on each other. They rely on the caucus. And look, what's better than having uh, conciliaries, if, you, if I might, such as Speaker Pelosi, Leader Hoyer, and, uh, and, and Whip Clyburn, just around in case you have some questions. Um, yeah. it, it's fascinating. Uh, and look, it's, this is kind of the no drama. Hopefully, Democrats are going to come in, usher the new leadership, and begin preparing for next Congress. Yeah. It's but massive. Before- it is. And, and, and before that happens, Congresswoman, this country has had two women on either end of the president. The two most powerful, the second and third most powerful people, you could say, in the country are women. The the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, Speaker Pelosi, who before Vice President Harris was elected, was the single most powerful woman in the United States. The two of them. Just talk a little bit about, before we go, what that has meant for women and girls and for little boys who want to see what the future looks like, because a lot of in a lot of cases, the future is female. It's meant everything to me, I have to tell you that. Role model would be an understatement for these extraordinary women, and Hillary Clinton among them. And Hillary uh, I have Clinton, three yeah. granddaughters. Yeah, I have three granddaughters. I have a grandson. Uh, but my sons, my daughters-in-law, my granddaughters, we all see these women as role models. No longer will anyone ask, uh, can a woman do this job? No, a woman can do this job and can do it extraordinarily well, historically well. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to uh, something about uh, Speaker Pelosi. She is a woman of such faith. And that faith was translated into confidence for the next generation of leadership. And so she didn't stand there with any trepidation over whether or not she passes the torch to people who are ready for it. She's prepared us all. uh, And she has a confidence in us and a confidence in the leadership team you just detailed. She's a woman of faith, of family, uh, of intellect, and confidence in our future. Confidence in the future of our country. Uh, I have to tell you, I I cried a little on the floor, uh, sad for what is passing, and so joyful and feeling so lucky for what I've been able to be a part of. I have to tell you, and this is not a partisan matter. I grew up as a Democrat, but this is not even a partisan matter. Speaker Pelosi is a great woman. 
And I think even if you disagree with her deeply politically, you have to admit that the greatness of this historical figure that we all got to experience in real time. Congresswoman Madeline Dean, uh, Nadeem El-Shami, thank you both very much uh, for sharing this night with us. Up next on The Readout, just one day after belatedly gaining their little tiny, teeny, tiny, teeny house margin, Republicans lay all their cards on the table. And yes, they're not interested in legislating. Oh, no, just chaos. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It's been one day since the House of Representatives was officially called for the Republicans, and already we're seeing the shambolic mess that's in store. In their efforts to retake the House, you heard Republicans beating the drums about crime, inflation, and gas prices. And you'd think that they'd address at least one of those things as their first order of business. But oh no, with the MAGA inmates running the asylum, we are seeing what the next two years in the House will be about. Here are the incoming chairs of the Oversight and Judiciary Committees. I want to be clear. This is an investigation of Joe Biden. And that's where the committee will focus in this next Congress. So this is the focus on the Judiciary Committee, the political nature at the Justice Department, and the linkage now to what was happening with the Hunter Biden story Again, just 15 days before we have a presidential election. Uh, Yes, yes. Forget all those issues that we told you about that actually impact Americans' daily lives. Hunter Biden's laptop is paramount. And of course, it will be followed by the crucial investigations about the origins of COVID-19. Nancy Pelosi and the DOJ's handling of the January 6th insurrectionists and migrants at our southern border. And then there are the growing calls for many in the MAGA caucus looking to impeach President Biden. Attorney General Merrick Garland, too, and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for something we'll tell you about later. I mean, we don't know. You got me. What is it for? But why does there need to be a reason other than to try to own the libs and get retribution for their twice impeached orange leader? Perhaps if a competent Republican speaker was about to take office, things would be different. But sadly, that role will likely be held by the person Donald Trump refers to as my Kevin. Let's just be really clear. Even if Kevin McCarthy is able to cobble together enough support from all the fringes of his caucus, he's nothing more than a marionette controlled by the strings of the, controlled by the strings by the hand standing by the guy standing next to him. We have seen when it comes to standing tall as the leader of his caucus, Kevin has a penchant to turn tail and run. Do you want to? 
was the same earlier this year when reporters tried to ask him to respond to the RNC, declaring that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was legitimate political discourse. Run, Kevin, run. None of this should be, should be a surprise to the Democrats. But the real question for them is how to navigate this new reality. Kurt Bardella, the former spokesperson and senior advisor for Republicans on the House Oversight Committee back in the day, who's now an advisor to the DNC, writes in The Atlantic, Democrats must now answer the call and elevate their best communicators. After all, the number one mission of the Democratic minority should be communications. Obvious candidates for the top jobs on oversight and judiciary include Jamie Raskin and David Cicilline. And Kurt Bargella joins me now, along with Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst. I'm going to start with you, Kurt, because you wrote the, art, the article. You've seen what it looks like when Republicans go wild on oversight. And that is going to be the committee where all the crazy is going to take place. What should Democrats do? They need to match up. You know, back in 2010, when Republicans took back Congress after that election, Democrats actually realized they were in some deep water. They knew that they needed to make a change. So they ditched the seniority system. They benched Ed Towns, who was a ranking Democrat at the time, and replaced him with a guy named Elijah Cummings. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, us at the Oversight Committee Republicans, we, we were not happy about this. Yeah. We were, we, Cummings was a brilliant tactician, an amazing communicator, and we knew that he could get the best of us, that he could win on that dais, on those hearings. Well, now here we are in a similar situation, and there's a, there's a competition right now for who's going to lead the Oversight Committee. Is it going to be Jamie Raskin? Is it going to be someone like Jerry Connolly or Stephen Lynch? Democrats need to put forward the best person for the job who knows how to fight these moderate Republicans. And in my opinion, Jamie Raskin is the best person we could have leading the oversight committee. Same thing at Judiciary Committee. And, and nothing against Jerry Nadler, who's mm -hmm. led the committee very well for a long time. But I think this is the time where we need to reset someone like David Cicilline, a fighter, a brawler, someone who knows that we are going to be in a street fight against the Jim Jordans, against the Comers, against the Marjorie Taylor Greens, who's angling to get on the oversight committee. <laughs> we know Kevin McCarthy cannot control these people. Yeah. We know, as, as Oscar Wilde once said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Well, Kevin's about to find out what that's like. <laughs> he's going to be living in hell. <laughs> if he ain't drinking now, he's going to be drinking. Uh, Charles, let me get you in here, because uh, let me just show you a collage. This is the House Republican. This is their official their official Twitter account, which we know Twitter is, is at this point an anemic sort of you know dying monster. But they tweeted this. Hunter Biden's laptop is real. Joe Biden is the big guy. The Biden crime family must be investigated. It's about national security. Like they're freaking out. They, I mean, the vast majority of Americans couldn't pick Hunter Biden out of a lineup. They don't care about him. He's a, he's a, he's a, he, in a lot of ways, he's a tragic figure. I mean, this is someone who had dealing with addiction and was dealing with a lot of personal issues. If, if anything, what you know about him makes you feel bad for him. And they've decided to turn him into their new Hillary Clinton, right? Their obsession. We had this conversation, you know, just among the team earlier. Give us some advice, Charles Blow. You're an intellectual giant of the, of the uh, journalistic world. How should we deal with this? Because part of me wants to ignore it. Part of me wants to laugh at it. I'm in between those two. Uh, what do you think we as the media should be doing with all these ridiculous investigations to come? Well, I'm going I'm to stay on the politicians first before we get to the media. Okay. You know, I, I actually believe that the, the best strategy here is to stay on policy and to, to, to let them put on a show and to c tell Americans constantly that it's a show. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it is very hard for them to make the case that that Hunter Biden is uh, did something wrong and benefited from the family name when in every one of the Trumps did exactly that. So it doesn't help 
them in their argument as much as it would someone who had not who was not running against Donald Trump. And that seems like it's going to be the mashup in 2024. And all of this is theatrics and blowing of smoke and fishing to try to damage Joe Biden for 2024. That's what the entire exercise is about. So I don't think it works as well. They could have had, you know, if they were going to stick on the crime and inflation numbers and more stick more to what Trump, you know, uh, did in 2016, which is uh, demonize people, right? <laughs> you know, uh, talk about crime so, and, and evoke black people and immigrants. Talk about the border that they, they are coming to replace. That actually was a more effective strategy. And with the new leadership that's coming in uh, in the House, it would actually they would get they would have people to point to. You know, this is just you know devil's advocate. It's not what I would want to do, but that that actually works for that base. This thing, you know, of trying to make this person, uh, uh, Hunter Biden, into some giant boogeyman in charge of a giant conspiracy to get all the money from all the foreign leaders and, and foreign companies, it just doesn't land. It doesn't have a victim uh, in the same way that Benghazi had real victims. And e- even if Hillary Clinton wasn't responsible for it, you could have a family come forward and say, you know, I, I'm hurting and I want more answers. And that helps pro- to propel that narrative. They don't have that here. So it just becomes a very hard sell to the American people, I believe. Yeah. And I mean, the only person who was hurt by the Benghazi hearings was Kevin McCarthy. He got chased out of his first attempt to become speaker because he blabbed that the whole purpose, he he gave away the whole thing like a Scooby-Doo villain and said, (laughs) you know, this Benghazi thing is going to destroy Hillary Clinton. She won't be able to run for president. Everybody was like, you're too stupid to be speaker. Go away. Right. So it it only hurt him. In the end, didn't hurt Hillary. She testified for 11 hours. People were like, boss. Right. And so, I mean, I guess to come back to you on this, Kurt, I mean, Democrats won't be able to pass anything through the House. Okay, nothing is passing the House. Right, it ain't nothing's going through. And so Democrats, like you said, are going to have to be on defense in a sense, fighting against this craziness. And then the media has to decide: Do you look at the crazy and debunk it, or do we just ignore the House of Representatives since no legislation is coming out of there and let the progressives? talk about the things they would like to be doing if there was a real Congress. Well, I can tell you the Republicans are banking on the fact that the media won't have that kind of discipline, that they will chase the subpoenas, they will chase the press releases, they will chase the press conference, they will chase the the hearings. That's what the Republicans are hoping will happen. I think for Democrats, we have to tell the story. We have to point out the hypocrisy. You can't talk about a presidential office and a presidential family benefiting financially from the office without talking about the first family of the Trumps, without talking about Jared's billion dollar Saudi Arabia, without talking about what just came out last week from the oversight committee, that Trump's foreign hotels, that, that foreign countries were bilking the taxpayers, spending money after money after money trying to enrich Donald Trump personally. You can't talk about malfeasance without talking about how Trump mishandled classified information. You can't talk about finances without talking about Trump's refusal to turn yeah. over his tax returns. That's the story and the context that Democrats have to tell. And if the media is going to chase this catnip, then yeah. they have to tell the story with the full context of what Republicans ignored. And oh, by the way, you don't get to say you want your subpoenas enforced when no, you spent no. the last four years Same, ignoring you congressional ignore subpoenas. subpoenas. And Come by on. the way, uh, I can tell you who's not going to be chasing their little subpoenas and their little story. Moi, because none of this matters at all. God bless poor Hunter Biden. I hope that he recovers and that he has a good, decent life. But you know what? I mean, I care about his personal life. OK, I just don't. Sorry. Uh, Kurt Bardella and Charles Blow. I mean, try it if you want to, but it ain't going to work at least at seven o'clock. It's not going to really work on a lot more places than you think. 
Coming up, thank you both, Charles Paul and Kurt Bardella. Coming up, Cannonball, we are diving. We are diving into the blue wave to put Democrats in control of governorships and legislators in some key battleground states. Filmmaker and activist Michael Moore, who predicted that Democratic success, joins me next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Republicans only got a little red puddle in the midterm elections. But across the Great Lakes, there was a big blue wave, especially in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Democrats held on to governorships with Gretchen Whitmer reelected in Michigan and Josh Shapiro elected in Pennsylvania. Both won by double digits, victories that helped carry a host of other Democrats to victory, including Pennsylvania's Democratic Senator-elect John Fetterman flipping that seat from Republicans. And at the state level, Pennsylvania Democrats won control of the state's House of Representatives for the first time in more than a decade. Meanwhile, in Michigan, voters rejected the big lie by re-electing Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. And Michigan voters also sent a clear message about control over your own body, resoundingly passing an initiative ensuring a state constitutional right to reproductive freedom. Michigan Democrats also secured majorities of the state's House and Senate for the first time in nearly 40 years and made history again by choosing the first woman Senate majority leader and first black man as House Speaker. With that newfound control, Michigan Democrats have already signaled what's on their agenda. High on the list, repealing the state's right-to-work status as well as increasing teacher pay, penalizing polluters and passing gun safety laws, police reform, and LGBTQ protections. And joining me now is Michigan native Michael Moore, Oscar-winning filmmaker and host of the Rumble with Michael Moore podcast. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, sir, to say I told you so. You were, I mean, we were very <laughs> skeptical of the red wave stuff because I am very skeptical of the polling aggregators and think it, they seemed a little suspect to me. And so we were listening to people like Tom Bonnier who was saying it's an abortion election. Turned out that was true. And you were right. So go for it. Say I told you so. <laughs> yes, abortion. To all the no, no, I can't. I won't do that because I understand why so many people bought into the narrative, the false narrative, that it was going to be a red wave. People are afraid. You know, we've gone through four years of Trump. We've gone through all this stuff. I, I get it. But we have to stop, stop listening to these false narratives and trust ourselves. We, we are the majority of this country. There are more Democrats registered in this country than Republicans. Sure. We've won seven of the last eight uh, uh, presidential elections with the popular vote. More people want us than they want the Republicans. We've just got to start believing in that and start operating from that 
that place. And in Michigan, all those things you just said, all that's true. The, 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 where I live up in northern Michigan, we just elected our first Democratic state representative, the state House of Representatives. Nobody can remember when a Democrat had ever been elected in our district before. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, the, our, our congressional delegation from Michigan has now had become a majority Democratic delegation, eight Democrats, seven Republicans. I mean, Jerry Ford's old district in Grand Rapids, part of his old district was won by a woman, a Democrat, uh, defeating uh, the Republican, Jerry Ford's district. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm just saying that that this has not just happened in Michigan, as you said, and not just Pennsylvania. By the yeah. way, I loaned John Fetterman my hoodie and my cargo shorts, and he returned the hoodie, but not the cargo shorts. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I'm just, them back. <laughs> you, you started the show with fashion with that beautiful coat that Nancy was wearing. It's such an honor to be on your show tonight, on this historic night. Uh, that speech today by Nancy Pelosi was so incredible. And I love that quote of, that you love, that I love, about you have to be able to take a punch, you have to be able to give a punch, but it's for the children. For the children. For the children. Take the Can I just say, just, I just wanted to finish the last part of the. Yeah. It wasn't just Michigan and Pennsylvania in the Great Lakes. Minnesota, finally, the governor and the House and the Senate, Democratic. Yeah. Maryland, uh, uh, the House, the Senate, and the governor, Democratic. The trifecta. And a black governor um, for the first uh, time. Yes. And Massachusetts now back to the, Demo- the Democrat is the governor, yeah. the Senate, and the House. That means that's our four states just last Tuesday that won the trifecta on this, joined the other 14 states now that are are completely Democratic in terms of the top leadership, the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. That's a long way from five, 10 years ago. And people have got to start feeling uh, the joy of this because, um, you know, it, it can only get better. And I, yes, they they looks like they may win the House. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like uh, what's, you know, when you get the, the, the everybody gets a trophy, you got to give them something <laughs> in this election. Well, so, let, let, me, so, let, let me let me just real quick, because one of the other yeah, things yeah. that happened, I think there were two trajectories. One, I mean, Michigan, your your home state in particular, women now run that state, which is pretty incredible. That's the right. Attorney General, uh, the governor. That's right. Um, right. And also the secretary of state, all all reelected. And the lieutenant and, governor is African-American. There are, and the lieutenant there are African-American. no white men. Uh, lead in the top leadership of Michigan. We shall not be replaced. We <laughs> shall not be replaced. But I mean, the thing about it is that to me, it, it sort of really put a, a pin in it, right? That women were really not having it in this election. And you saw a woman no. elected as governor in Massachusetts as well. Uh, you know, there was a lot to me that wasn't as good as it could have been. Uh, black women, that, there was a historic number of black candidates. Most of them lost their statewide races. That was a, a big challenge and a big problem. And it could have been historic. So there, it wasn't a perfect election. But in your mind, for women, is this going to give hope that we can push back on these attempts to, to take away our right to choose? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were only, I think, three, three or four states that had, well, there were five states, if you count Montana and Kentucky, that had an abortion resolution on the ballot. We should have had more states have that. And we should be thinking about 2024. Everybody get to work now on getting yeah. an abortion amendment on your ballot, yeah. uh, get the, get a raise in the minimum wage on the ballot, yes. uh, a marijuana legalization. All these That's will right. bring out the Democratic base and we'll yeah. have a strong 2024. But it's got to start now. You know how yeah. they say, like, at the, at the Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know, they start the next day. We're starting the next day on next year's <laughs> to parade. Build the we need yeah. to start right now in 2024. <laughs> 
Yeah, build the floats now. Don't wait. That is uh, yes. Michael Moore's great political no, don't advice. Wait. Don't wait. Michael Moore, thank you very much, man. Really appreciate you coming back to thank, the show. Thank, thank you, Joy, uh, for, thank. Uh, for everything you do. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, all right, so Mutual Admiration Society here. Thank you guys very much. Up next, conservatives ramp up efforts to make sure students learn their version of American history without all, you know, the icky racial stuff that makes them uncomfortable. We'll be right back. <laughs> This morning, a Florida federal judge issued a scathing rebuke and injunction of Governor Ron DeSantis's anti-democratic Stop Woke Act, which, if enforced, would dictate what professors are allowed to teach about race and gender in college courses. The judge, who previously blocked other portions of the law in a separate case, quoted Orwell's 1984 when describing the law, calling it positively dystopian. He added that the First Amendment does not permit the state of Florida to muzzle its university professors, impose its own orthodoxy of viewpoints, and cast us all into the dark. Frankly, it should come as no surprise that Chairman DeSantis loves to tell people what they can and cannot think or teach. Back in the early 2000s, DeSantis, fresh out of Yale, was hired as a history teacher at an elite Georgia boarding school. According to reports from former students, DeSantis behaved like he was superior to some of the kids and taught Civil War history in a way that sounded like an attempt to justify slavery. DeSantis has helped mainline this brand of whitewashed history with a heavy assist from conservative ideologues and activists like Moms for Liberty, who endorsed more than 500 school board candidates across the country this year. 49 percent of them have won. Their goal is to put a stop to a more comprehensive and inclusive curriculum. It should also come as no surprise that their candidates were successful in Florida and Berkeley County, South Carolina, where their new conservative majority school board moved to fire the district's first black superintendent and terminate the district's lawyer, ban critical race theory, and set up a committee to decide whether certain books and materials should be banned from schools. You can probably guess which books. And talk about Orwellian. Look, banning books is pretty awful and anti-American. You can't imagine being more extreme than that until you hear what Virginia's governor, Glenn Youngkin, is up to. And that's next. Virginia governor and probable presidential candidate Glenn Youngkin has made it his mission to claw back four years of progress made under his predecessor, Ralph Northam. And now Youngkin's political appointees to the Virginia Department of Education have released new standards of learning. In their first major move, the board rejected a draft version created under Northam in consultation with museums, historians, professors, political scientists, economists, geographers, teachers, parents and students that would shape what kids are taught in school. How bad can Youngkin's plan be? Well, it suggests not teaching students about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks until they're in sixth grade. Oh, and you know Juneteenth and Cesar Chavez? Yeah, well, if your kids go to school in Virginia, they may never hear about them at all because Youngkin's board doesn't recommend teaching your kids about them. You may also never hear about racism because they never mention that either. As for Native Americans, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, LGBTQ, women's, the women's rights movement and Americans with disabilities, well, you don't exist because your contributions aren't worth mentioning either. What do they think is important for your kids to learn? Free market economies being essential to democracy, smaller government is good, patriotic songs about America and the entrepreneurial characteristics of people like Christopher Columbus, which I suspect Native Americans might disagree with. Joining me now. 
is Senator L. Louise Lucas, president pro tempore of the Virginia State Senate. Uh, Senator, Senator Lucas, Leader Lucas, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is stunning. I'm reading through my the list that my producers made of the things people can't learn, including in kindergarten, taking away the lines that say indigenous people were the first inhabitants of the land we now call Virginia and the United States. They don't mention indigenous people at all. What in the world is going on in Virginia? Well, I can tell you what, it has been nothing but insanity ever since this governor hit Richmond. Uh, Joy, I want to preface my remarks by saying that I'm only two years younger than Emmett Till. And I grew up doing massive resistance. So education is something that's always been near and dear to my heart. And to think that this governor is so dumb, or, uh, the, or at least the members of his board of education are, that they think that we will not fight them on issues like this. I mean, to take the kind of things that I live through in Virginia and just whitewash them. Let me just tell you something. We, 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 we're going to push back on this with every ounce of energy that we have. Now, in addition to the things that you said that they're going to take out of history, how about they want to identify the slave trade as profitable business in, 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 in America and identifying kinship, family ties and, and, and common values that helped enslave people cope with the conditions of slavery. It is critical that we teach the truth that we teach the full history of our nation. And look at all the people who are the leaders who helped to develop and build this company, build this country. I mean, I just think it's just unconscionable that, that, that this Board of Education would think that that was all right to whitewash that history. We're just not going to sit by and let it happen. I'll tell you, I'm going to fight with every ounce of energy that I have to try to make sure that, one, that it doesn't happen, and two, well, you know, they haven't been confirmed yet, so maybe... Uh, to hold their confirmation might be one of the things that we could do. Uh, let me just, for those of you who think that we're exaggerating here, third grade, the old guidelines say students should learn about the ancient societies of China and Mali, as well as those of Egypt, Greece, and Rome. The new guidelines don't mention China and Mali at all. The old guidelines say students should learn about the geography of all seven continents, while the new guidelines, this is for third grade, only say that students should become familiar with the countries of Europe only able to identify Europe's countries, especially Greece and Italy. They're literally saying it's not necessary to learn about any other part of the world except Europe. They could not be more clear. Joy, the, look, all of this stuff that they have agreed to in these standards are racist, historically and factually incorrect. They're not age appropriate and, and reflect explicit political bias. And I'm telling you, the Black Caucus... I mean, we we are just so upset about what's going on at the State Board of Education that we have come together and we're going to fight back with everything we have to try to make sure that we get rid of some of those people. Five people on the board, first of all, don't even have a public uh, school background. They have private school background. They know nothing about public education, don't care about black and brown children. And obviously this governor doesn't either, but he always finds an opportunity to get an armful of black people and take pictures with them after he's done something stupid like what this board of education is doing right now. It, it feels like the goal here is to indoctrinate Virginia children to believe that there are no flaws in American history, that indigenous people either didn't exist or agreed to hand over their land and that slavery was OK. I, I just wonder, just as a, I can't imagine what they what they I just don't understand it, but that seems like what they're doing. Do you think this is just about indoctrination? Well, you know what? I, again, I think it's just an attempt to whitewash history because they only want to teach 
the parts of history that makes them feel comfortable. They don't want to teach about the parts that make them uncomfortable. And that's what this is all about. But unless we can take the good, the bad, the ugly, and teach all of the full history, I think we do all of the citizens in this country, in this Commonwealth, and especially our students, a disservice. We need to teach the full history just as it happened. I've lived through a lot of it. I didn't have to read it in the book, and I can tell you it happened. I knew exactly where I was the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I, I, I got to read one more. needs to be taught. Absolutely. Let me read another one. Tenth grade. The old guidelines call on teachers to dissect, compare and contrast the concepts of colonialism, imperialism, nationalism and racism. The new guidelines don't mention them at all. Essentially, these will be undereducated children who couldn't pass an international standards test. This would break Virginia education. Exactly. And I tell you, we reject all of that. And I'm telling you, this Board of Education needs to get a, get an idea of how egregious this is. And come to the understanding, it, it, it's hard for me to believe that this governor is that stupid. And he's got this board giving him some badass information and somebody needs to get it right. He's an, he's an ideologue. I mean, he's basically he's turning Virginia into Florida because he's basically Ron DeSantis a little further north. Uh, Senator oh, L. Well, Louise Lucas. Maybe that's the reason why he has a zero in his ratings for presidential, uh, for his presidential <laughs> 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 Senator Eloise Lucas, it's been such a treat having you on. President Pro Tempore of the Virginia State Senate. That is tonight's read When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.